You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. Father Paul, welcome to the show today. Thank you very much. We are always delighted and honored to have you on the program. We have an exciting topic today. We want to talk about Genesis 1 through 11 and something you've said about this section of the Bible in the past, that it controls Scripture. Now, we know as your students that you talk often about how you have to take the whole can as literature and deal with everything from end to end. We know that you can't read the New Testament without the Old Testament. In fact, we know the New Testament by itself, you've called it the invitation card to Scripture. But this is really interesting and specific. You talk about a specific section of Genesis 1 through 11, controlling Scripture. Can you talk about that and help us understand what you're driving at with this point? Okay, let me try to do that. If it needs more time, we can go on another podcast. It's complex in the sense that it's very dense. It's like an abridged version of the entire Bible, including the New Testament. It is as though, you know, before presenting a paper, you give a summation of your thesis, and then the rest is mere expansion. Let me approach it from the perspective of what I wrote in my book, The Rise of Scripture, that the three foci of Scripture against the common grain as the people approach it, the election and so on. And we talked about that, that it is the interest in the nations, all the nations rather in the specific Israel. But the two other foci that are stressed is that the location of the biblical story is the Syro-Arabian desert, the Syrian desert around the area of the two rivers. And the third focus, which is the most important, is that the Bible is presenting its view that urban society is really the pits, the anti-God, the building of buildings. We have this already in Genesis chapter 10. And then it offers as a counter-proposal shepherdism in the open desert where you don't have buildings and you have one patriarch, the shepherd, of his human flock as well as of his animal flock altogether. I need to begin with this to show you as quickly as possible how all these foci are taken care of in Genesis 1 through 11 and actually settled. Before going further, I would like to say that at the beginning you said that, you know, if everything is there, why is Scripture needed? Well, Scripture is needed to precisely clarify more the points made in Genesis 1 through 11, and I'll touch upon this at the end. I mentioned in another podcast that Abraham, the father, if you like, of the Scripture of Israel, does not appear until the end of chapter 11. So we have 11 full chapters that deal with the nations and that deal also with the heavens and the earth, with the totality of God's creation without specifically any interest in Israel or Judah. And we notice immediately that we have only bad news with Adam, with Cain, with Noah, with the Tower of Babel, which means that this bad news regarding the behavior of human beings will be taken up 
more specifically in the story of Israel. And if we jump to the last chapter of the book of Isaiah, where we have the salvation in the new Zion and also the mention of new heavens and new earth, very interestingly, there, almost out of the blue, we have suddenly the mention by name, not of all the nations in chapter 10, but of a series of nations that are found elsewhere only in Genesis chapter 10. That in itself is striking, meaning that ultimately at the end of the scriptural track, God is interested again in his entire creation. The other aspect that we find in Genesis 1 through 11, and that is central to the scriptural story, is the location of the Syro-Arabian desert. I detail this in my audio, but I would like to pick up the main points that are found already in Genesis 1 through 11. Already Eden in chapter 2, very clearly you have a river in the garden that got planted and notice you have a ground a garden you, we don't have buildings suddenly it splits into four rivers that cover the area around the syro-arabian desert very impressive now if we jump to the table of nations we find the same thing we have shem ham and japheth and if you look at the geography of those nations peoples you would see that they are spread in the area of the Syro-Arabian desert, with the exception of the Japhethite, which are the Greeks that come from the Isles. But then very clearly, the interest of the scriptural writer is the presence of those Greeks in the area of the Syro-Arabian desert. We have this later pushed even beyond the Old Testament in the times of the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. And very interestingly, two points here is that Ham and Shem cover practically the same area. We have sometimes repetition of the same names. So the idea here is that according to how one lives, one is either under the blessing of Shem, in which Japheth enters, notice Japheth enters into the blessing of Shem, and Shem, as we shall see, is the consummate shepherd, and the opposite is Ham in Hebrew, which is hotness and thus ire. And very quickly, let me jump to that very strange text that appears out of the blue and disappears, where Ham commits a sin of disrespect toward the senior, and it is not he, but it is his son Canaan that is cursed. And Canaan, as you know, controls the rest of the scripture in matter of geography. One is protected under Shem, which is the name, and I detail this in my audio. There is no reason to go into detail now. The last point is shepherdism. Very strikingly, let me zero in on chapter 4, where we have two brothers that represent the entire humanity. One of them is Cain, that ends up by building a city, in spite of the fact that God asked him to wander around. He built a city, and he has a brother, Abel, who is set very typically, set to be Ro'etzon, shepherd of flock. Usually in the Bible, shepherd is enough. 
But this expression, shepherd of flock, is found connected with Abel, then it is found connected with Abraham, then with the other patriarchs, then with Moses. So it is very interesting. And we know the showdown between the two brothers. And even after the disappearance of Cain, the image of Cain reappears in Nimrod, the king of Babel, whose name is from the root Marat, to rebel against God. Now, another interesting aspect I would like to mention, that obliquely, Abraham, Noah, Enoch, are shepherds through the use of the verb hithalek, which is the Hebrew for to walk to and fro, back and forth, exactly as a shepherd does in the wilderness. Now, what is really striking is that the first mention of that verb in that form, the seventh verbal form, hithalek, appears as a present participle in conjunction with God in chapter 3, while he was looking for Adam. It is amazing. And, you know, scholars try to figure out, well, he was walking gently in the garden in the breeze of the evening. And so that's not what the text is saying. He was looking as a shepherd would do to find the lost sheep and then to judge the lost sheep. So I would like to stress this. Mithalek, God was in the garden. So this shepherdism is very important. And again, the way I mentioned earlier, Isaiah with the nations, we have the reappearance with full force at the end of Ezekiel, where we hear that God is a shepherd and his representative, the new David, is also a shepherd. So when Abraham joins the biblical scene and story, the entire matter has been already settled. The city has been condemned, shepherdism is loaded, and so on and so forth. Now what happens beyond that is that his progeny follows precisely time and again the path of disobedience that is condemned. And this is to be taken as a showcase, a repetition, an underscoring, showing that everybody is really under sin, the way Paul will mention it in his famous epistle to the Romans. The nations are put together with Israel and Judah in Amos 1-2, and then elsewhere in all the prophetic books. Let me end up by jumping to the New Testament and show how really the repetition is intended. You give the example the same message in three different examples. Three is a classic number of the totality. Not only once, not only twice, but three times I've said that. And this is reflected in a feature which is usually passed by even by scholars. When you hear Luke 15, you always hear three parables, and you speak about three different parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son or human being. But if you go to the actual text, you would hear that Jesus said this parable, one parable, in three forms. And these three forms 
happen to be precisely reflective of the shepherd life. The first one is the sheep. The second is the coin. And here I would like to remind my hearers that very often, beginning with Abraham and Lot, that they have sheep. And then you have this other word in Hebrew, mikne, which means movable possessions that you can carry with you. And this is reflected in the coin. And then you have the human being, a member of the flock. I am personally convinced that this is what we hear in the story of Luke 15. The Old Testament is an extremely expanded version of Luke 15, if I may put it this way. So that would be in my hearing of Genesis 1 through 11. After this extremely impressive magisterial intro, you just rehear the story again and again and again and again. I mean, we all know that, the story of the patriarchs and then Moses and then the people. It's the same thing. Your discussion about the city and the anti-city message in the beginning of Genesis is very compelling. But later on, when we talk about the eschaton, the prophets talk about a city and a new Jerusalem and God being at the center of the city, especially we have this in Ezekiel. How does that city then relate to the anti-city discussion in the beginning of Genesis? Well, let me jump to the end of scripture. I remind you that the city is the city of God and thus built by God and not by human hands. You have this word at the end of Isaiah, Achiropitos, the temple that is not built by human hands. And this city comes down from heaven. And I would like to go back to Ezekiel, which you yourself brought in. You notice that in Ezekiel 47 and 48, we have the lots, the allocations of the land of the tribes. There is no city at all, not even village. And in the center of all these tribes that are around it, three, 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 and three, you have a city whose name is the Lord is there. So it is obviously metaphorical, a city that comes from heaven built only by God, meaning that his presence is the city. That's why in the trek in the wilderness, he had a tent. If you like, his city is a movable city. That's why ultimately it is the new Zion in heaven. It is not like the city built by Cain. It is not like the city of Nimrod. It is not the city that the nations wanted to build in chapter 11. But the inclusion, to fulfill my answer to your point, is that bringing in the city is very important because it forces the Greco-Roman-minded person who is concentrated around the city to understand that he is also saved into this special city, which is the residence of God, and we are all around him the way the members of the tribe and the flock are around God. So really, one has to take these things in connection. And to come back to what I said earlier, the ultimate feature is that this city comes down from heaven, from God. He builds it. Obviously, God does not build cities. It's a metaphoric place where you are protected by the walls. And in Psalm 125, the psalmist says that you, God, surround protectively Zion. 
which is very funny. How could he be inside the city and outside the city? So all these are metaphors to reflect the presence of God among us, if you would like. So Father, in some of the episodes on the Gospel of Mark that Father Mark and I went through, we noticed that Jesus is constantly trying to get out of the city. He's in the city, and then he tries to sneak out. People try to surround him. He goes to the water. Is this also related to this anti-city message that we have in Genesis, or is it just a coincidence? I don't think it's a coincidence. Ultimately, you notice that in the Gospels, Jerusalem is condemned until she submits to the message of peace of Jesus Christ, who is presented again as a shepherd in Luke, in John. And when he leaves the city, he goes either to the wilderness, which would be more Eastern, Semitic, and so on, or to the Lake of Galilee or the Sea of Galilee. Everybody knows that the Sea of Galilee is no sea, it's a lake. But calling it a sea is a pointer, as I showed in many of my books, and many other scholars agree with me on that that it is the Mediterranean Sea, the sea between the lands, the Roman Sea. And it's an invitation to include also the Gentiles in the mission of Jesus. Notice when he crosses the Sea of Galilee, he goes into an area where the people raise pigs, which is not allowed by the law, which means that we are dealing with the Gentiles. So I don't think it is a coincidence. The only city that is of value is the city built by God. In my audio on the rise of scripture, I have a section about the difference between Jerusalem and Zion, the way I discuss the difference between Elohim and Yahweh, the difference between the first David and the other David. So these things are matters that one has to listen to and not just say, well, Jerusalem is Zion, Zion is Jerusalem. It is not so. They are related. In other words, it's our world. Either you live in the city or you live in the desert. You have to live somewhere. But the Bible is powerful in metaphors. This has been a great discussion, Father Paul, and you certainly help clarify what you mean by control and this concept of expanding, the Bible constantly expanding what's happening in Genesis 1 through 11 is really helpful. It makes sense because you can talk about any part of that section of Genesis when you're dealing with any other text as a teacher, and you can see the interconnection. So really appreciate you expanding on that idea for us today. We're honored Thank to you have you much, and looking forward to the next discussion. Thank you very much. Take care. Have a great week, folks. Thank you, Father. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.